Well, I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through 26. Uh, this is often called the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain as it's entitled in Luke. Uh, I don't agree with that title. That is the location on where it's taken, but it really doesn't say what is said. And I think to understand what is said, we have to understand how it was said. I don't know about you, but in school, uh, as I was growing up, I loved science, I didn't like English, and I loved math, all the way up until they started throwing letters in the numbers. It just didn't make sense. Yeah, I was good with the number system, then the X's and Y's, and then they really, I just, oh, I'm done when they started throwing in imaginary numbers. I'm like, hey, I can do that as a kid. I don't need real numbers and fake numbers to confuse me. And so I was done with mathematics. And so I don't know if you realize it, but the Bible, many of you do, but some of you might be new, the Bible sometimes challenges us to really think. Certain words often have dual meanings. They have both a spiritual meaning and a physical reality in this world. And Jesus really presses the crowd and the disciples that were listening to him. He uses terms that are shocking and surprising. So let's set the background here just a little bit. I, as I mentioned, it was called the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain. Last week, I told you the picture behind me uh, in front of you is the likely place archaeologists believe that the Sermon on the Mount took place. And the reason why they also call it the Sermon on, on the Plain was because he came down the mountain to a partial place where it was flat enough, where literally thousands of people were gathered. And we saw in the text last week um, that there was something critical here to this because Jesus, uh, Dr. Luke, is presenting him as the new Moses. And Moses gave the law coming down from the mountain as the people couldn't come up. Now they can come all the way up and touch Jesus, unlike Moses. Not only that, but as Moses uh, commands uh, Joshua, when they come into the land to set part of the people in front of Mount Ebal and a part of the people in front of Mount Gerizim, they were to receive the blessings of the law if they obeyed and the curses. And just like that, Jesus gives the blessings and the woes. And so we see Jesus giving not the law of Moses, but grace and truth as the gospel of John presents. So he's living out this situation as people from all over Israel, from the seacoast, have come up to hear him. And it's this amazing spot there on the mountain. This is the view from the Sea of Galilee. Again, it doesn't probably look like Mount Everest to you, but it's quite high. Uh, this is from a great distance, and you can see it's flat, so a large number of people could come and gather and hear him, unlike Mount Everest, where it's really sharp and uh, steep, steep inclines. This, it's tall, but it's wide and flat. This is the most likely spot, again, uh, the archaeologists tell us, but there were other candidates around the Sea of Galilee. Here are a couple. This is more close, uh, more um, kind of a little bit closer to Tiberias, the city of Tiberias there. Either way, this is the setting in which this occurs, and it's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. But let's just read through the first little part to give you the background and the setting, because you need to understand the structure here to get the bigger picture. The first and foremost, the most important um, understanding or the piece that helps us to understand is who is he speaking to? Verse 20, he says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. So this isn't just the 12. These are his disciples because much of what's going to go on here is are these unbelievers or are they believers? And what is this about? 
as I spoke to you just a minute ago, as I was introducing who we are as a church, our mission is to be disciples and make disciples. And that is challenging because most people view themselves as Christians, not as disciples of Jesus. And are they the same? And we discovered if you've been here at our church very long, they are actually the same. In Acts chapter 11, it says in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. It is the only place in the history of the world that I know of, or at least the history that the Bible records, that a word is used for the very first time. And in that, it defines it. A disciple or a Christian is a disciple, and a disciple is a Christian. They are not different. So if you're thinking to yourself, well, I always considered myself a Christian, never a disciple. I kind of viewed them as super Christians. No, you're actually a disciple. And then the big question is, what is a disciple? And we're about to read here what Jesus says to his disciples, how they are to live out their faith. Because that's the challenge, right? It's easy to think of, well, I'm going to go up there and listen to Jesus. Life is good, right? But we're not there. And most of the people at, at one point in time weren't there either. They were in other places. So let's just read here through this briefly, and I'll give you a little more context. Uh, second half of verse 20 says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. So we got poor, hungry, weeping. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn your name on evil on account of the Son of Man. So we have these very powerful words that all sound very negative. Weeping, hungry, um, uh, reviled, excluded. That sounds really crazy. Imagine once again the people all coming up to Jesus. They were thinking that Jesus was ushering in this kingdom that was amazing. They were going to cast off Roman rule, many of them thought. They were going to make Jesus their, their national ruler. It was awesome. And here he presents these blessings of weeping, hungry, poor, of, of being excluded and reviled on account of his name. It was just the opposite. Just kind of like in math, numbers and letters. It, it seemed just the opposite of what you would expect. Rejoice on the day and leap for joy. And behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So all of a sudden, this great sounding stuff, I don't know about you, but I don't like to be hungry. I like to be full. I like to laugh. I like to, to be somewhat wealthy, and I like people to say nice things to me. And he's saying the woes. So you're really stuck with what is going on here. And we'll begin to understand there, there's a dual meaning here. There's the physical reality and there's a spiritual reality. But the ending context is just as important that we might understand what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Look at chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. It says, after he had finished all these sayings, this is after the sermon. This is the closing aspect, how Dr. Luke caps off this sermon. After, all the, he'd fin after he'd finished all these sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Remember, Capernaum is right there, maybe a, a stone's throw away from where he was speaking. Now, a centurion, a centurion was a Gentile who served in the Roman army. 
Just the opposite of a faithful Jew in general terms. They were hated. They were not only hated because they were Gentiles, they were hated because they served an oppressive, evil regime. So he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant, a rich man, right? You don't have servants, and most likely here, I think the translators are softening this a little bit. He was more than likely a slave who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal, or he sent the elders of the Jews to Jesus, asking him to come and heal his servant. So we have this odd thing. We have a Gentile sending the leadership of the Jewish people to Jesus. Verse 4, And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He, this Gentile centurion, is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is one, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Wow, huge sacrifice. Skip on down to verse 9. It says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd and followed him saying, I tell you, referring to the centurion, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So we have this centurion that has the riches, that has the power, that has all the good stuff, and yet he's spoken of by Jesus of having the greatest faith in all of Israel. So what's going on here? Here's the challenge. The literal physical interpretation of the blessing and woes are very real. But at the same time, there is a spiritual reality. And so, in other words, yes, you can be poor, but if you miss the spiritual reality, you're just poor. And yes, you can be rich, and you should be warned of putting your hope in riches, but there is a spiritual reality as well. And in the centurion, he had all the things that the woes warn about, and yet he was able to master them because he was able to step above that and place his faith above all else in Christ. And he is said to have the greatest faith in all of Israel. So in other words, in our rich nation, as we're sitting here, it's really easy to be comfortable, to be full, to be rich, and miss Jesus. The individual with the greatest faith has all of that and is able to look beyond that and doesn't find consolation in those things. So what is the title of this sermon? I believe this is what Jesus was speaking of when he was speaking to his disciple. He's laying out this is how or what faith looks like. And he closes it with the example of the centurion. He's really challenging them for those who had believed, just like many of you. Many of you maybe have made a decision to believe in Jesus. But what is that belief? What does that faith really look like Monday morning, Tuesday morning. This photo, I took it from the Mount of Olives looking down on the Sermon on the Mount. And why I like it so much and why I'm using it as a title slide is simply this. After about eight or nine days on maybe a vacation, maybe you're going to go out in the woods even today for Father's Day, and you're like, oh, I love this. And you're by the campfire in the mountains, and you're like, man, this is the greatest. About three hours into it, the camp chair isn't all that comfortable. 
and you're like, man, these hot dogs, in my mind, they used to taste really good, but they're just this meat kind of substitute, mystery meat. And, and the smoke is getting in your eyes, and the mosquitoes are starting to come out, and all of a sudden, the camp out isn't all that great. Well, believe it or not, when you're in Israel, after about 10 days, you're seeing all these ancient places where Jesus had walked, and this great faith that people had. But in the background, you begin to kind of crave those nice modern buildings with a nice lobby and with air conditioning. And your mind begins to drift about the world. And it's this amazing tension as you're sitting on the Mount of Olives where Jesus once stood. You're, you're just kind of at a point where you're trying to decide what life is all about because you can see the places in the Bible Yet you can see the world in which you're living in. And it's this tension. You're at a crossroads constantly. Blessings and woes that Jesus is about to present here. A great contrast to the law. The law was this external life. And the internal reality is where Jesus is going. So going back to verse 20, he says, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Matthew 5, 3 makes this very clear. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So there is this spiritual reality of if you humble yourself before God, yes, that is the only way that you can enter into the kingdom of heaven because it is only the humble person that confesses his sins before God and asks for Jesus to be Lord of his life, not himself. It's the only way. At the same time, if you are poor, guess what? You don't have to become rich in this world to be blessed by God. You don't have to become rich in this world to have a great life. It's just the opposite. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Remember that. Whether you're smart or whether you're brilliant and, and the super uh, scientific mind that is uh, has multiple PhDs or an individual that didn't quite graduate high school, doesn't matter. However rich or however poor, however much you achieve in this world, yours is the kingdom of God if you humble yourself before God and turn to Christ. The first half of verse 21 says, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. I don't know about you, but it, I'm kind of embarrassed about lunchtime because I can never make it to lunchtime. I work here at the church in the office Monday mornings. I'm working with my administrative assistant, Shalyn. She's amazing. And she's just over there working away. And about 11 o'clock, I start watching the clock. I'm like, I'm not making it to noon. And it never fails. I'm like, Shalyn, I'm taking an early lunch. <laughs> I'm at home. The moment my stomach starts growling, I'm out of there. Here in America, the idea of being hungry is almost foreign. Uh, food is plentiful. But what is Jesus saying here? Blessed are you who are hungry. In other words, if you haven't had lunch, you'll, you shall be satisfied. He's going to provide you some food. No, there's this perspective. Once again, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. When's the last time in your life you truly hungered for righteousness. In other words, maybe you've been watching social media lately or the news, 
And yes, you see social media in the news and you're like, man, that's horrible. There's a lot of bad stuff out there. But do you actually turn to hear from the word of God and pursue righteousness? Or are you looking for that middle ground of, well, I just wish it was like when I was growing up back in the day. Things have gotten so bad today. Just a few years ago, things were good. No, they really weren't. They've always been bad. There are just times that are better than others. Have you hungered and thirsted for righteousness? Do you realize church service doesn't get that? Doesn't provide that? This is one hour of a day. It can certainly encourage you, certainly challenge you, hopefully be a blessing to you. But a person who's hungered and thirsting for righteousness does so on Monday morning, Monday night, Tuesday, Wednesday. And by the time Sunday comes, this is a celebration. This is a reflection of Christ in your life as a disciple all day, every day. The second half of verse 21 says this, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. You know what? It's okay to undergo the terrible things in this life and cry and weep and mourn. It's a part of life now. But we have a hope looking forward to a time when there is no more sorrow, no more death. Blessed are those who weep now, for they shall laugh. I don't know about you, but I like laughing. Uh, there is an app or there is a kind of a place on YouTube called Dry Bar Comedy. It's actually kind of a Mormon thing, believe it or not, down in Provo, Utah. But the thing that I like about it is it's comedy, but it's clean comedy. It's one of the only places I've found. So dur during my day, if I'm just kind of coasting through life and I need kind of something to not think about for a while, I'll, I'll watch a stand-up comedian that, that can tell clean jokes because it's fun to laugh. But guess what? Three minutes after... I've put away YouTube and back focused on the world. No peace, no joy, no laughing. It's just trying to escape reality rather than dealing with reality. So the idea that blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh transforms that. Because whether you laugh now or weep now, guess what? If you truly know Christ and are living as his disciple, you have a future hope where there will be everlasting joy, peace, happiness, laughing, rejoicing. It's a different perspective entirely. One is trying to escape reality. The other one transcends reality here in this world. Verse 22 and verse 23 together, it says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. So, or for so their fathers did to the prophets. And he introduces this com comparison and contrasting of what they did to the prophets and what they did to the false prophets here in just a moment. Just put simply, if no one is upset with you in your life, chances are you're not standing up for Jesus, at least not in our culture today. If you don't 
believe that, just try speaking out on social media. Tweet something, post something on Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, whatever. Just try standing up for Jesus and see what your own family and friends say and how they respond, much less the world. It's a reality that here in America that we've never had to deal with in my lifetime. I was watching a short clip of the news, and there's a reason why I don't watch the news anymore, because it only made it about five seconds into it before I turned it off, and it was an interview of a lady, and this is what she said. I have no idea what she said before or after, and she said this, the only person that I hate more than Jesus is, and I turned it off, like, why in the world would anyone hate Jesus? It makes no sense. Yet, we have this lady being interviewed on a news show and it's being broadcast to, to millions. And that's her statement. If you stand up for Jesus, you very well may be hated and excluded and reviled and spurned. On account of the Son of Man, Jesus. Not on account of the stuff you're saying in your opinions, but on Jesus and notice verse 23, this is something the Baptists don't like to talk about, but it says this, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, and behold, your reward is great in heaven. So it's not just being persecuted, but Jesus promises for those that endure that, your reward will be great in heaven. I don't know about you, but I don't really understand heaven. I've studied heaven, I've thought about heaven, and it's just hard to comprehend, Right? But one of the things that Southern Baptists don't talk about is there's heaven, and you think, how much better could heaven get? But the Bible says there, there are actually rewards in heaven. So it apparently it can get even better. I don't know what that looks like. It, it's just very emetic. We're not exactly sure. And the same is true of hell or the lake of fire. There's greater judgment for some. There are degrees, and it sounds very Catholic, but over and over again, the Scripture talks about rewards and as you, who may be actually physically poor, who may be weeping, who may not have enough to eat, who may be hated, we have to remember the spiritual reality that there is a heaven, that life is eternal. The only question is where you spend eternity, heaven or hell. And if you have that eternal mindset, then all the things in this world become very, very small, very unimportant. And then you can really truly say that you are blessed regardless of your circumstances. A commentator by the name of Butler puts it like this. The question pops up at us, do we trust Jesus enough to wait on his blessing or must we find instant gratification and fellowship and fame with the world? Life with Jesus in heaven will be heavenly. Is that reward enough, or must we have something here and now? If so, depart from the company of the blessed. Verse 24 says this, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Verse 25, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Wearsby, one of the commentators, puts it like this. I love this. This passage is so popular and has been studied by so many over the centuries, it's hard to add to it. 
And this quote is so insightful. He says, the four woes all share a common truth. You take what you want from life and you pay for it. If you want immediate wealth, fullness, laughter, and popularity, you can get it. But there's a price to pay. And the price is this. That is all you will get. Popularity, laughter, fullness, and wealth. Jesus didn't say these things were wrong, but he said being satisfied with them is its own judgment. Everything that perhaps you're seeking on Monday morning is transient. There is no hope or peace in it. If you're popular now, there will come a time where you're not popular. If you're rich now, guess what? In the grave, you're poor. If you're full now, there will be a time where you're likely hungry. It's constantly like sand just slipping through your hands. As you chase it, you're trying to grasp it. And as you try to grasp it, you try to hold on even tighter. And the older that you grow in this world, you realize that it's, it's pointless. It can't be done. If you're beautiful now, wait a few years. You'll have a few wrinkles and a little less hair. If you're rich now, great. Maybe you're rich later, but guess what? Because of the physical realities of life, you won't be able to enjoy it. How many of you want to see a 70-year-old in a bikini on the beach, right? We're saving up all this money so we can enjoy retirement, and then what? doesn't work. You're trying to have a family. Guess what? Kids are great until you have kids and you realize they are a challenge. They are a trial and a tribulation, but they're a blessing. But guess what? They leave. It's just this constant grasping at the wind, never able to achieve it. And for those individuals with that attitude, Jesus lays out these four woes. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Let's look back at that chapter for just a moment, chapter 7, that I read just a little earlier. Beginning in verse 2, it says, Now a centurion had a servant or a slave who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. So we're seeing this combination, this individual who has ideal faith, he is both rich, he has a slave, he is rich and powerful, and then he has the position of a centurion in the Roman army. He's got it all. Yet, what's being introduced here is that mourning, that weeping, his, his value is slipping away, his riches are slipping away, and it's in the form of a highly valued slave or servant. So he has both. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews. So he has this position of power, believe it or not, among the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. You know where faith really comes in, what faith looks like? Try having a building program. It doesn't look like it now, but our church is quickly outgrowing our building. We have two services, and when we have one service, it's pretty full, and then when COVID-19 isn't uh, fully going on in our community, it's very full. And so we're at some point going to have to have a building program. 
But in all building programs, it always works like this. The poor people look at the rich people and say in the, in the church, they go, well, they're rich. They should pony up the money to build us a new building. And then the rich people look at the poor people and say, yes, we're rich because we worked really hard. We went to school. We've saved our money. We know how to handle funds. So until you poor people learn how to handle money and begin working hard and saving money, we're not going to pony up the dough. You guys need to learn how to tithe and to give to the church. And so there's this constant battle in there. But what is the man of the ideal faith in all of Israel, according to Jesus, what does he do? Well, he's a Gentile centurion who loves God. But based on the Mosaic law, he's not even allowed in the synagogues. Can't even walk in the building. Doesn't get the blessing. Does he wait for the poor person or the, the rich Jews to contribute for their building that he doesn't get to use? He loves God so much and is able to not set his hope on riches. He takes the money that he has and he alone builds the whole building that he will never get to use. That is the man who loves God. That's the ability that all of us here desire because quite frankly, we are blessed. We are rich. Few of us experience physical hunger, but do we spiritually thirst and hunger for righteousness are we humble before God, poor individuals? Or do we place our hope in our riches? And when it comes time for giving, do we hold on to it, essentially saying, well, I'm going to wait till someone else steps up in faith? It's this amazing dual reality of trying to decide where and how your faith is going to be played out in your life as a disciple. I'll close with this last quote. One commentator spoke like this. He says, like many people today, many of them thought that happiness came from having great possessions. Is your goal to have a house? Is your goal to have a nicer house? Is your goal to have a nicer house on some land? They thought their happiness came from having great possessions or holding an exalted position. Is your hope on a promotion? Maybe a couple promotions? Or enjoying the pleasures and popularity that money can buy? Is your hope in Amazon? Craigslist? eBay? The RV lot? The car lot? That's where they were more than likely placing their hope. Imagine how surprised they were when they heard Jesus describe happiness in terms just the opposite of what they expected. They discovered that what they needed most was not a change in circumstances, but a change in their relationship to God and in their outlook on life. Here's the beautiful Thing about being a disciple of Jesus living by faith you can have joy and peace right now not one thing in your life must change you don't have to get rich you don't have to get smarter 
You don't have to have a better car or wife or kids. You can be blessed right now. Poor rich. As a matter of fact, if you get rich and get full, there are more challenges and you're warned. That's the amazing thing. Right now, as a disciple, you can have the best of both worlds. That's my prayer for you today, that you'll live as disciples in the midst of your riches and wealth, or even in the midst of your mourning and your weeping and your persecution even. Let's live our faith, not just in church as we get to sit back and read about Jesus, but as we go out into the world and face the challenges there. Let's pray. Father, I just uh, confess it's really easy for me to coast in life, not be worried about blessings or the things of this world, just getting by. Lukewarm Christianity as the Bible describes it. Lord, help me to truly thirst just like I once did. Help each of us to desire to hear from you, to be like new baby Christians who are reading your word and your promises for the very first time full of excitement and joy and to understand we're not to live life just doing and going but being being transformed into the image that you desire us into the image of your son father if there is anyone here who's never made the decision to personally repent of their sins and trust in the price that jesus paid of dying on the cross his payment for their sins and to turn and to trust in him as Lord. I just pray they would do it right now silently. There are no magic words. They just have to believe and confess before you, Lord. Your word promises that they will be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, give them boldness to live that faith out, both in baptism, in service, but in life as disciples. We just thank you for that opportunity. We just pray that they take it this very moment. There might not be another day, Lord. We pray for your soon return. In his name we pray.